today we are going to be continuing our conversation in the book of Revelation. And let me just say that I know this is a deep study, and I know that we've been in some pretty deep topics over the past few weeks. And I also know that, you know, being a part of any church is like a one-room schoolhouse. I've said that many times. You have uh, new Christians and you have very mature Christians, and we're trying to hit all of them. And it's difficult sometimes. So if you're one, a newer Christian or maybe you don't understand where this is coming from, just bear with us. Get, glean as much as you can. Um, I'm always willing to talk about it, or I'm sure other pastors, Pastor Rip, Pastor Leland, or even just friends would talk about this because what we're talking about is a very um, good book of the Bible. We've been, we've been promised a blessing for those that would read and study the book of Revelation. So I'm willing to accept that blessing um, as the Lord has promised it as we study it. And uh, so today we're, we're jumping into Revelation chapter 20. And this is beginning the millennial reign. Um, and we're going to be getting through the first three verses of this. But I just want to say that everything, first of all, everything God does is all about redemption. Everything he does, everything he's, everything he does is all about salvation. He's not about judgment. He's not about anger. He's not about avenging, even though he does all those things. His purpose in all of that is for you and I to come into a saving relationship with God because he loves you that much. He's willing to go to the full extreme of all these things because of his deep love for you and me and for his church. I love that. So, to set the stage for today, um, what we've come out of the last three or four weeks, we've been talking about Revelations chapter 19, and, and this has been called, the chapter 19 has been called by many the Hallelujah Course, or the most exciting chapter or book chapter in the Bible. And we've talked about that, and, and the first time we talked about it, we talked about that there was a, John noticed that there was a great celebration in heaven, a great celebration in heaven. John was transported into heaven to the, at this point in, in Revelation 19, because they were celebrating over the destruction of the city of Babylon, as well as its evil um, empire that has been um, throughout the whole world up to that point in time. And there was a great celebration in, in heaven. In fact, the first six verses of chapter 19 are the only times that the word hallelujah was used in the whole New Testament. Hallelujah was used four times. That's why we call it, or it's been called the hallelujah chapter, because they were praising God for the celebration of the victory over evil. And then... Later in that chapter, we talked about the marriage of the bridegroom of heaven to the bride of Christ. The bridegroom of heaven is Jesus Christ. The bride is the church. That's what we are. We are living in the church age right now, and we are the church, the bride of of, of, of Jesus, that he's coming back to wed in the rapture of the church. That is the taking away. We talked about the Galilean wedding traditions and how that fits right in with the end times there. And then finally, we talked about the glorious second coming of Christ. The second coming versus the rapture. Two, two different events separated by a period of time. The rapture, the church is taken away. The second coming, Christ actually comes down out of heaven, sets down his feet on the Mount of Olives, and then he begins his earthly millennial reign, which is what we're going to be talking about today in the next few weeks. So it's a good study, and I'm excited to get into it. In fact, if we're going to name chapters, 
we would have named chapter 19 the most exciting. And I think chapter 20 can be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because of what it describes now and what's going to be happening over these next thousand years. You know, a thousand years is a long time, folks. You know, our country is only 250 years old. And we're already struggling. A thousand years, four times as long as America has been a country, is going to be God's righteous kingdom on earth. Perfect in everything. With a perfect king. A perfect ruler. No longer do we have to deal with governments that have false agendas. And not just false, how about evil agendas, right? Amen. That's what we're looking forward to when we get to the millennial reign. So that's why we're excited about it. So I want to, first of all, I want to take the time today to read the whole chapter so we can get a context of what we're going to be studying. So it's a long read. If you'd like to, you're welcome to stand up with me and read it. If you can't stand up and read that long, then you can sit. But stand with me if you will. And let's read together chapter 20 of Revelation. Chapter 20, beginning of verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Verse 4, I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, when a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us a prophetic word. We're thankful, Lord, that you've taken the time to have John the Revelator record this and write this down so that it gives us assurance and hope for the future. Because otherwise, what would we hope in? What would we trust in? But God, we know that your prophetic word is going to come to pass just exactly as you have written it down. 
There is no doubt in this. There is no wondering, is this going to happen? Because it is going to happen just as you said. So now I pray, Father, that you open our ears and open our eyes, that we would understand as much as we can what you would have us to understand about this time so that we can look forward to it and that we can be evangelists and that we can love people and love this world, love people in this world to love them into the kingdom of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you see now why this is called the greatest chapter in the Bible, or one of them? (laughs) Because this presents a summary of the tremendous series of events that are going to happen just prior to and during that thousand-year reign on earth where we will be, we will be, our government will be perfect, righteous, holy, It will have nothing within it that is not right. Nothing in it that has got an agenda for them, not for us. It will, it will serve people and we will serve it. And it will be done perfectly. It's the way we're supposed to be. It's the way we were designed to be. But we all know that sin gets in the way and messes it up. So I'm looking forward to that time. I want to be in a time where I have complete freedom and I can completely trust my leaders. Man, I long for that, don't you? Don't you long for the time that we can look to those that are over us and we can not have to wonder what their agenda is? Man, that's what it's going to be like. In this time period that we're talking about, there are literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. I never thought about it that way. I kind of thought that prophecy was being fulfilled here and now, and then we're going to be out of it. But no, when when you read through the Old Testament, it is basically a work of prophecy. The Old Testament is about prophetic things that are hard to understand, granted. I understand that. But, you know, thank goodness for Bible scholars that study and dig into the Old Testament and help us understand the prophetic word that these Old Testament prophets had. For example, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 3 through 6. Let's just read this, because this will be fulfilled in this thousand-year time. Jeremiah says, I myself... Speaking of God, will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. He's speaking of the Jewish people. And will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely who will reign wisely over a thousand years, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. It's Israel, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. That's just one of a number of Old Testament prophecies that are going to be filled, fulfilled in this time. But what I find so amazing yet is that even with all of these prophecies that have been written, there is still great confusion in the body of Christ. And that confusion is typical of Satan, right? He doesn't really want us to agree on anything. He doesn't want us to come together and be a body of Christ. That's, I think, a big thing that happened with COVID. Stay away six feet. Don't gather in public places. Churches, stop meeting. Well, that's kind of Satan's agenda. He wants to keep us apart. 
He wants to keep us confused. So also, this chapter may be one of the greatest chapters, but also it has some of the most heated debate over what is this thousand-year millennial reign. What's it really mean? Is it literal or is it figurative? And we're going to talk about that because we have to kind of get a feel for this so that we can um, understand better what we believe. So I invite you to dig in a little bit here with us and understand what these other beliefs are, not to be confused, but to be more confu- more um, more solid in what you believe the Bible says. So being with this, there are basically three interpretations of what this thousand-year reign means. There is a amillennialism. There is a post-millennialism. You say the word with me. Post-millennialism. Say it slow. And then, number three, pre-millennialism. And I want to just touch on these a little bit here so you can kind of get a feel for what they are. Then I would encourage you, to, if you're interested, to go read, them, go read about them some more. So first of all, um, amillennialism, what is that? Amillennialism <laughs> denies the literal nature of an earthly millennial kingdom over which Christ reigns for a thousand years. A means not. Okay? Amillennial means that there will not be a literal thousand years. And they define the thousand years to be figurative. Obviously, it has to be figurative because more than a thousand years has occurred from the death of Christ until now. It's 2,000 years that have happened since Christ's death. And so they are, th- they are calling this thousand or millennial reign to be a figurative number. They also believe that, that we are presently living in the millennial kingdom, that we're experiencing it now, which is characteristic by the simultaneous experiences of both the victory of the gospel and the suffering for the gospel. This is their belief. They believe that Satan is partially bound at the cross. That he was partially bound. Not, because obviously, um, Satan is not completely bound, is he? So they believe that he's partially bound. And what, is, what they also believe is that Christians are awaiting the visible and physical return of Christ, which will be simultaneously the rapture and the second coming at the same time. That there's going to be a rapture and a second coming. I'm, I mean, in, instantly, and one's got to come before the other. So if there's a rapture, then those that are raptured are going to immediately come back with Christ in the second coming because we're one of the armies that are coming back. So that's their belief. At this time, Christ would judge the world and he would usher in the eternal kingdom. They believe all of God's promises and prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus at his church during the present age. They don't see Old Testament prophecies happening in the millennial reign because we're living in the millennial reign now. So that's what they believe. That's just some top of... You can go and study much more about it, but I don't want to take the time to go deeper. The post-millennialism believes that Christ will return after this figurative thousand-year reign. So Christ is going to return after the thousand years end. But again, it's not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative thousand years. They agree with the amillennials that Christ returns after this time. But the difference, the difference though, in their viewpoints is not when Christ returns, but what the world will experience and look like when he returns. Postmillennials believe 
that there will be a gradual ending of the church's suffering before Christ's return. And as we've said earlier, that the amillennials believe the world will be a mixture of good and evil, victory and suffering, with a partial binding of Satan. But it's progressing towards a goodness, not regressing towards evil. They expect a golden age of righteousness on earth in which the church experiences increasing prosperity and great influence over worldly cultures. So their viewpoint holds to the expectation that eventually the vast majority of people will be saved. And this will lead to a time just prior to Christ's return, second coming, in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and nations. Basically, this will lead to a greater and greater degrees of peace and justice with the world over. Basically, it's, it's a man-made utopia that everything is going to get really good. And when it's good enough, then Jesus comes back to judge the world. Lorraine Baitner, if I said that right, defines post-millennialism this way. Post-millennialism is that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals, that the world eventually is to be Christianized, and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace, commonly called the millennium. Well, thank God they believe that. (laughs) I don't. I don't see it that way. I don't see the world getting better. I don't see it coming to a greater and greater a sense of peace and prosperity, I see it to get worse and worse and spinning out of control. So that brings us to premillennialism. And this follows a, I see all these big words, um, an interpretation that things are going to happen in order, that the millennial reign of Christ on earth is a literal, not figurative, but a literal 1,000-year period preceded and followed by resurrection and judgment. That's the interpretation that we hold to. And our teaching now is going to be with that context in mind, that we are a premillennial belief that we're going to have a church age is going to end with the rapture of the church, a seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and then a thousand-year literal reign on earth where Jesus will be the king. George Ladd defines it this way. Following the seven-year tribulation period and after the second coming of Christ, Christ will then rule and reign for a literal thousand-year period of time before the final consummation of God's redemptive purpose in the new heavens and a new earth to come. So this was just a brief summary of the three different beliefs. And... Uh, I encourage you, if you want to go back and study on your own, there's just lots of material out there. So we're going to go through chapter 20 in the context of a literal uh, context of where it's going to be one thing after the other. It's going to be chronological in its context. And uh, we're going to uh, study the premillennial viewpoint of God's unfolding plan that way. So uh, we're going to get into chapters 20 now, verses 1 through 3. This is our text for the day. Okay, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. 
And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time. So John the Revelator begins with a description of the messenger from heaven being an angel that he sent from heaven for a very specific purpose. And he's on a very important mission. And his mission is to bind Satan. Now, I'm going to talk more about that mission in a minute. But first, there's a very interesting point to consider in that God sends an undisclosed and unnamed angel to bind Satan. This angel isn't named, and he's not given any more information about who he is. Now, we know that there are many angels in heaven And there are angels that have different statures. In fact, Satan was an angel of heaven. He probably was, if not the greatest, one of the greatest angels in heaven. And that's where pride came in his life, and we know the story. But there are also other angels in heaven. Michael, the archangel. Gabriel is a messenger angel. And we've seen both of those angels in Scripture by name doing specific things. So this angel, because it's not named, we could make an assumption that it's not Michael nor Gabriel. It is just a common angel. Now there's some significance to that, so hold on to that thought. Gabriel, he was the angel that brought the news to Mary that she was going to bear Jesus. Gabriel was also the angel that appeared to Joseph in a dream that said, Joseph, take Mary to be your wife. Gabriel also appeared to Daniel to give him the interpretation of what he was praying for and what the Lord was giving to him. These were very important missions that Gabriel was sent on. Michael, the archangel, is known as the warring angel, and he also was named many times in the Bible, bringing about warfare on behalf of the saints numerous times. But this time, God sends an unnamed angel to carry out one of his most important missions, and that is to bind Satan. So here's the obvious question. What does that say about Satan? What does that say about Satan? See, I believe it's to show us that Satan is not God's equal in any sense. He's just Satan. That this is a declaration that God is in charge and that he could easily, easily stop Satan at any time that he wants to. Yet, God allows Satan to continue because even in his evil, he directly serves the purpose of God. Why does bad thing, why do bad things happen to good people? Because it brings glory to God. Eventually, in the process, God uses evil for his purposes. That's how great our God is. He's not limited to have to do things the way we think he has to do things in order to be God. He can take the bad things in life and make them good. Amen? Has he done that for you? Have you ever seen bad things in your life turn out to be good things? It's because of the goodness of God. 
That's who he is. And I think that's one of the reasons why he sends this unnamed angel on this very important mission to bind Satan. It tells us that Satan isn't who he thinks he is. And I'm, listen, and I'm not being unrespectful to angels. <laughs> so that angel that's undis- unnamed, undisclosed, I'm not saying you, sh- you aren't great. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. I'm not being disrespectful to the angelic realm at all here. But, w- but rather, I think what it is is to emphasize to us that, that, that Satan is no match for God. And listen, if you are a believer in Christ... If you are a committed follower to Christ, a committed disciple of Christ, then he is no match for you either. It's Jesus living in us, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's who we are in Christ. So don't don't lose your identity. Don't get confused in who you are because hard things are happening to you. And I love it. If you are a committed disciple of Christ then Satan has absolutely no authority over your life. This this is a follow-up to Pastor Rip's message last week. If you are a follower of Christ, maybe not. But if you are a committed follower, a committed disciple of Christ, understand who you are. You are greater than Satan through Jesus Christ who lives in you. Amen? I, we can't forget that. We have to stress that point in our life because we have too many lies coming against us. We have too much confusion coming to us in this world that we are defeated. Yes. No, we're not defeated. We are the victorious ones. We are that remnant that's going to be victorious in the end because of Jesus Christ in our life. Amen. Boy, we could stop right here, but I've got 15 minutes to talk. <laughs> Actually, I got a lot more, but I won't. We'll keep it to 15 minutes. Thanks, Jack. So, <laughs> so what is this angel's mission that he's on? Really, what is it? Well, let's go back and read our our text again. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon that ancient serpent, who was a devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he, the Satan, must be set free for a short period of time. So here this angel has been given the power of God to do six things to Satan. Number one, to lay hold and seize him. Number two, to bind him with a great chain that can hold the devil. Number three, to throw him into the abyss, or some scriptures say the bottomless pit. To lock him in and to plate a seal over the lock so that he cannot get out and he cannot deceive the nations no more. And then number six, to keep him there for a thousand years. Why is it important for us to emphasize those things? Because this. Because Satan tried to do that to Christ and he couldn't do it. Because Satan tried to do that to Jesus on the cross. He thought he won, didn't he? When Jesus said, it is finished, Satan thought he won, only to find out that he couldn't keep him in the grave. 
He couldn't keep him in the grave. He failed miserably at that. Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, and the angels came and rolled away the, 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 the rock, and Jesus walked out. When Jesus went down into Hades to take back the keys of death and hell, Satan tried to resist giving them to him, but he couldn't. Jesus took them because they're rightly his. So the devil has no authority over Christ, and therefore he has no authority over us. Amen. That's why I love studying Revelation, because this is a book of freedom, guys. This is a book of victory. This is a book of redemption. This is a book of future hope. That's why it's a blessing to read it. That's why it's a blessing to study it. So now, for what purpose did the angel bind Satan? He bound him, but why did he bind him? Satan is bound now with a supernatural chain that he cannot break. And he's thrown and sealed into a pit, but not for the purpose of punishment now, but for the purpose of restraint. Understand that. Punishment, his, his punishment is coming later. Right now, Satan is just thrown into the pit to be restrained until the time comes where he has to be released again. And we're going to talk about that in future weeks. This also implies that all of Satan's demons are bound with him. So that in this thousand-year period of time, when Satan is bound and thrown into the pit or the abyss for a thousand years, he and his demons are, are kept from their evil influence and their, their ability to spread lies and deception anymore for a thousand years. Satan is bound so that he cannot attack and deceive people. Because right now, Satan's main strategy of attack is deception. His main strategy is, is lies and deception. And First Peter says that, that we are to be alert. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to destroy. Not for somebody to play games with. Not for somebody to go out and drink with and have some fun and revel a little bit. No, the devil's coming to destroy you. Just so you know that. So many people think that he's a fun guy to be with. So many people think that we're going to go to hell and have a big party. Well, that's not the case, guys. He's not. He will tell you that right now to suck you in, but the reality is that he's not your friend. He's out to destroy. He is not bound yet. He is not bound. Even though he's defeated by the cross, he is not bound yet because when you bind something, it means that you restrain them from keeping them from doing what they want to do. Satan still is the prince of the air. This is still his kingdom. And he has great influence over us and over people. Us, I mean people. He tries, he gets in to bring confusion to the church. I will admit, he brings pressure against me. He, he puts oppression against me. He puts oppression against you. That's what he's trying to do. And let me just tell you this too. Satan doesn't even know my name. Satan is limited. He is one place, one person. He can be one place at a time. He's not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. And he is not omnipresent. Only God is. Satan has a lot bigger fish to fry than Mike Way at Center Point Assembly. So I'm not afraid of Satan because he doesn't even know me. But he's got demons that do. 
He's got demons that know me and are assigned to me, assigned to this church, assigned to this community, assigned to Charlevoix, assigned to you. And he's got demons that are attacking us all the time. And they're attacking us through thoughts, through ideas, through temptations, through things that appear good a little bit maybe until we see the full thrust of the lie that they are in. He's very deceptive today. He's sneaky. He comes in like a light, right? The Bible says as as an angel of light. But he comes in with a purpose. His mission is to, is to destroy as much as he can. And that's us. Because God loves us so much, the enemy is out to destroy us. So that's what his purpose is. So that's what makes the mission of the angel so appealing to those in the church today. Because we can anticipate a time when we can live under a life of a perfect king with no hidden deception or no hidden strategies to take us down, right? That's what Revelations 20 verse 3 says, that he threw him into the abyss, locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And I think that's one of the most important aspects of a literal interpretation of a premillennial reign is that there is a, a a thousand year period of time where Satan is bound and that all of society that will, will be ruled under a perfect king after the second coming of Christ. And it's this, and it's this victory over the Antichrist and the false beef and, and Satan that is worthy of God's praise. So the next question I have is, who are these nations on earth during this time? Because it said in, in chapter 3, to keep him from, or verse 3, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So who are the nations that are living in the millennial reign? It's hard to believe, given the severity of the tribulation that we've talked about already, we went through the 21 judgments of the tribulation a few weeks ago, that given the, the severity of the tribulation and the great tribulation, um, which is the last three and a half years, it's amazing that anybody could survive that. But Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. That is, he's describing right now the great tribulation. And never to be equaled again. Verse 22, If those days had not been cut short, no one could survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So, who are the elect? Could it be that the elect... And the nations are the same thing. I mean, the Bible always ties together. It ties, it never, it never dis, um, disagrees with itself. So the prophecy given in Revelations chapter 20 verse 3 to keep from deceiving the nations anymore equals what Jesus said here in Matthew 24 that for the sake of the elect, those days would have been shortened. So the elect and the nations are probably the same people we're talking about. So who are these people? There will be many people left, both good and bad, that will make it to the end of the tribulation. Remember the context of Matthew 24 that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people. He's, t- he's talking to the Jewish people here in this context. Not a church context. He's not talking to us. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking about the Jews and how this will affect them mainly. In fact, remember, the whole tribulation period, the the major purpose of the tribulation is to bring the Jewish 
remnant, the Jewish nation that's still surviving, to a believing belief in Jesus as the Messiah. That's the purpose of the Messiah, to judge evil, but also to bring the Jewish nation into a belief of Jesus the Messiah. And after that happens, then he comes back. That ushers in the second coming. So remember, well, that's what we're talking about. Also remember that right after the rapture happens, miraculously, I'm not sure how this happens, but Jesus identifies 144,000 Jewish missionaries that were not saved prior to the rapture, because if they would have been saved prior to the rapture, they would have gone to heaven. So after the rapture, 144,000, and he goes back and he names 12 from each, 12,000 from each 12 tribes. You can go back and read that in earlier chapters in Revelation. Then these are believing Jewish people that are missionaries during the tribulation time. They're missionaries. They are out to save as many people as possible during this seven year period of time. They are marked by God and supernaturally protected from the power of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, especially after the, after the, after he stands in the temple, after the, the mid part of the tribulation and he declares himself to be God, then the tribulation really begins on the Christians. Then the Antichrist is on a full out war to kill every Christian, everyone that does not accept the mark of the beast. But these 144,000 Jewish missionaries are protected. And I gotta imagine that those that are saved, that they bring in the salvation, somehow they're gonna be protected as well. Or somehow they will be able to escape the wrath of the Antichrist. So no doubt there will be many saved people, Jewish and probably Gentile believers at the end of the tribulation. These are the nations. In fact, we know that there's, that this happens because there's a judgment of the sheep and the goats. That's given in Matthew chapter 25. And that's 21 through 46. And I'm not going to take the time to read that today. But basically what that is, is that God is going to gather all the nations and the people that are left at the end of the tribulation. And he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left And then he will say to those that are his sheep or those on his right hand, he will welcome them into the kingdom prepared for them by God. But to the goats, those on his left, he will say, away from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. So what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? This is the judgment on how people treated the Jewish people during the tribulation period. Remember, the whole context of the sheep and the goats is talking to the Jewish people. And he's talking about what, how people treat them. Because it actually calls, Jesus says, as you have treated one of my brethren. Jesus was a Jew. So he's talking how you treated one of my brethren indicates how you treated my Jewish people. The Jewish nation is special, folks, and we need to understand that. And we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem every day. As much as you can think about it, pray for them. When you think about it, pray for them. So this is not a judgment of salvation necessarily, what we're talking about here, but this is a judgment of moral worthiness and the ability to enter or not into the millennial kingdom of Jesus. 
I know these are kind of hard things to think about, but just bear with me. This is a judgment of those people, the sheep and the goats. How did they treat the Jewish people? If they treated the Jewish people well, then they are probably not an Antichrist follower. They probably did not receive the mark of the beast. If they received the mark of the beast, no, no entrance for sure, right? So this is, they're being judged on their worthiness. If they're, if they treated the Jewish people well, they're welcomed into the kingdom. If they didn't, then they're not allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. Matthew chapter 25, let's read this. This is in this parable, or in this, in this teaching. Matthew 25, 34, and then 40, it says, and then the king will say to those on his right, which are the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And the king will say, I will tell you, when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. So that's Jesus' judgment on the sheep. And he says, welcome. Come into the kingdom of the millennial reign. They're still living people. They're still alive. They're, they're human. They didn't die. Come into the millennial reign. So they are beginning. They are the entrance of the nations that are going to be in the millennial reign. Verse 25 through and 45 and 46, this is what happens to the sheep, or I'm sorry, for the goats. And Jesus says, and he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. It's through the judgment of the godly survivors that enter millennial kingdom. And they will be then the nations that will be ruled over, the humans. Now, let me just put a caveat here for a second. We, who the church, were already in heaven during this seven-year period of time that came back as one of the armies, we are already redeemed. We are in our heavenly bodies. We will not be under, we will not be human. We will not be in our flesh. We will not be under any more temptation of the enemy at all, ever. We're set. We're one of the rulers, if you will, of that millennial reign. And we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. I don't have time. Well, that's the next couple of weeks. Jackie, would you come and start winding me down here? You know, it would seem that after all of this, that this would be the end of Satan and his ability to deceive men forever, Right? But he will be released for a short time at the end of the thousand years. Why? Why is that? And what happens during the, during, the, during these, this this thousand year period of time? These are some questions that we're going to spend on the next couple of weeks. We're going to try to understand more about why does Satan have to have a release? Why can't it be over? Why? And then what are we doing in that thousand year period of time? Great questions. So it's my prayer that by studying this, that we're creating a hunger in our lives to live righteously. Because you know what? Here's what I want, guys. I want to witness it. I want to watch it. I want to be a part of it. I want to have a front row seat to what Jesus is going to do. And I can get that based upon how I live today. I have a little sign out in the front of our church that I've left up there all summer long purposely. 
It says, God has given us today to prepare for tomorrow. We need to take that serious. We need to know that what I do today really impacts tomorrow. And I don't mean that in any way that would say that we have to gain and work for our salvation. Other than that once I'm saved, it changes what I do. (laughs) It changes how I live. It changes how I talk. It changes what I do. My identity changes from a dead man to a living man. And I'm living under the power of Christ. For Christ. To accomplish His purposes. So that I can be maybe an evangelist. That I may not be one of the 144,000 Jewish missionaries, but I can be one of the millions of missionaries today. That I can do my job winning souls. That I can love people. And I can be honest with them. And I can open up God's word with them. And I can share life with them. Right? That's what we do. That's what it means. God has given us today to prepare for tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this this oh, this word today. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you, Father, for the inspiration that you give us. I thank you, Lord, for prophecy. I thank you, Lord, that you teach us about the things that are to come so that we can be prepared for those things today. And that it truly can change our hearts today. It can truly give us a desire to learn more of you and to learn more about you and to live for you in our entirety. And God, I pray for those here today or maybe listening online later this week that if they have any doubts about their salvation, that they can make it, they can, they can take care of that right now. They can accept Jesus to be their savior today simply by asking him to forgive of their sin. And then making a commitment then to be taught how to be a committed disciple and not just simply a follower. God, this takes time, I know, and it's hard work, I know, but we're not alone in it. The Holy Spirit has promised to be with us. That's the purpose of the, of the paraclete. The, 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 Holy, the Holy Spirit is our, is our guide. He's our comforter. He's our power. So I pray that we would just receive you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. And let's sing the song that Jack and Scott are playing as we prepare to leave.
Father, thank you so much for that promise of calling me a child, that I can be a child of the Most High, that we can be brothers and sisters here with Christ, that we can be family here today. I thank you for that. God, I'm so looking forward to that day when I see your face, Jesus. Really, I am. When I can look up and I see Jesus coming in the clouds. And how quickly that's going to happen. And how it's going to be an instantaneous event. And, and I believe soon, and when I look at all around and see what's happening in this world. And God, and even if you delay it 50 years, God, my anticipation and my hope is going to be that it happens tomorrow. I will never stop hoping that. I will never stop having that anticipation because of how great you are. And I love you in Jesus' name. Be with us now as we go to our homes that we would go with encouragement and and hope and promise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed.